This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we are going to discuss uh, the issues related to deception, secrecy, and the doctoring of evidence by presidents and other figures in the executive branch. Uh, We're not talking about conspiracies today. We're talking about the prevalence of actors in the executive agencies using their power to affect distort and color the historical record. Uh, This is a recurring theme, and it has been brought to our attention yet again in recent days by the evidence that on January 6th, 2021, there were about six hours of President Trump's phone logs of his uh, accounts of his phone conversations that are empty indicating that uh, while he was on the phone with many different individuals during the insurrection, something we know he was doing, um, nonetheless, there were no records of those phone conversations. And so this is one of many examples we've had over the last 50 years of presidents uh, erasing or trying to erase part of the historical record. We're going to talk today about why this happens, about its implications, and how we as a democracy should address these issues, why it's important to have accurate records of presidents and other uh, figures of authority, and how we can do a better job of preserving those records to better understand and keep account of those in office. We're joined by uh, a historian who has written, I think, uh, more about these issues, or at least the issues of secrecy and executive leadership than almost anyone else. Uh, He's really done some of the most fantastic and interesting work also on the role of propaganda and presidential leadership. This is Kenneth Osgood. He's a professor of history at the Colorado School of Mines. Uh, He's the author and editor of five books. Uh, My favorite is called Total Cold War. Uh, It's Ken's book on uh, the Eisenhower administration and its uses of propaganda for American foreign policy during the 1950s. Ken's books range uh, through U.S. political history, diplomatic history, how presidents sell war, civil rights in the conservative movement, international public diplomacy, and as I said, propaganda and politics in the Cold War. So I don't think there's anyone better situated to talk about this issue today uh, than Ken Osgood. Uh, Ken, thank you for joining us. Hey, it's a pleasure, and hello to you and to Zachary. And Ken and I have published an article on this topic in The Hill. We will place a link to that article in the description for this episode. Zachary is here, of course, with his poem to start us out. What is the title of your poem this week, Zachary? Forwards. Forwards. Let's hear it. It can be as simple as the man riding his bicycle down the lane, gripping onto the handlebars, not to say that there is anything here that wouldn't make him go crazy and start up with the songs of nesting birds in the blood-soaked streets, but just that there remains, after all has been blown to smithereens, one way to go. Forwards. It is all about not looking down at your feet or staring up at the cold blue sky when they come to you and list out your indiscretions, your indescribable indecencies. You must look them in the eye, as you will when others come to tell you of their dead. 
Truth is a powerful thing, a vacuum. It sucks you back into its cruel chambers, even when you have, have escaped and sold your soul to the sticky ground, and you cannot really escape it. Even documents, torn apart, can be sewn back together. It will only make us read them closer. It can be as simple as the man riding his bicycle between the iron hedgehogs, keeping himself straight and upright on the seat, even as he holds back tears and sees out of the corner of his eye the hefty question of the boy lying in the street. The young will ask it of you too some day, though perhaps you will be the one dying. Truth is a powerful thing, a tonic, bitter and piercing, holding you by the ears until you stare at its scars, but sweet in the end, squeezing your tears into a sugar, pushing against the roof of your mouth like the shrapnel of the grenade, or else the vibrating innuendo of a serenade, feeding you false fragrances until they gather dust and hold your breaths in the back of your throat. You will not remember it in the morning, but twenty years from now, reaching your hand out for a bottle of pills at the pharmacy counter, the truth will hit you square in the face. I love the range and humor of your poem, Zachary. What, what is it about? My poem is really about how difficult it can be, uh, even in one's daily life, to acknowledge the truth, to follow the truth, but how important it is to keep going forwards and to keep to keep bringing the truth with you where you go, because even if you try to escape it, it will come back and hit you in the face. <laughs> you cannot escape it. Uh, Ken, it, it, what Zachary's saying is to some extent a truism. Why is it that presidents seem repeatedly to think they can escape the truth? Why do they try to do this? Uh, yeah, before I before I comment on that, let me just say, Zachary, how much I enjoyed your your lyrics there. Uh, really powerful stuff, and a couple images um, that I really love is the the language you use, indescribable indecencies, which uh, I think answers the question that Jeremy just asked me about why presidents uh, distort or hide things in the historical record. But I also love the, the the closing image there of the the person reaching for the bottom of the pills as something the truth slaps them in the face. And I it reminds me of of times I've spent interviewing people who were once very powerful uh, and connected, you know, right up to the White House, very close to the president, and controlled access to secrets and to power. And uh, you know, their actions shaped the world. And yet, at the end, they're just old men telling war stories. Um, and there's a, there's a powerful sort of like uh, disjuncture there that in the end, that, that's how we all end up, is it not? You know, reaching for that bottle of pills, so to speak. Uh, that's right. Power is fleeting, Ken, isn't it? Yeah. And, it, and in the end, it's, it's just a story of life, right? Um, yeah. Yep. Well said. But in terms of the incentives for presidents and their advisors to distort the historical record, uh, I'll, I'll tell another really simple and very short story. Um, this morning, as I was driving my youngest child to school and, and thinking about this interview in my head, I, I turned to Verena and I asked them, uh, why, do, why do people keep secrets? And without any hesitation, um, Verena gave me a very simple answer to keep from getting in trouble. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's, it, immediately I was like, well, that's exactly the answer I, I wanted her to take because that was on the one that was on my mind. And I kept pushing her, are there, are there other 
reasons, and all of them essentially added up to you know hiding embarrassment, hiding disgrace, hiding shame, or or in the case of uh, Zachary's poem, hiding hiding indescribable indecencies. Um, the the incentives for presidents to distort the record are 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 not always focused on history. I think oftentimes it it is shaped on the present or the near present um, concern about hiding actions that would be embarrassing or damaging or condemned uh, if if it got out. Oh, one other story comes to my mind. I um, An early example of, of, of this in a strange way that I came across that was really interesting. I was reading uh, once top secret um, National Security Council meeting from 1956. And it seemed straight out of a Cold War satire, maybe Dr. Strangelove or, or possibly Get Smart. Um, and in the meeting, you, you don't often find this kind of conversation take place. And in this meeting, the uh, it's being presided over by Vice President, then Vice President Richard Nixon, because uh, Dwight Eisenhower was in the hospital. And he, be, he opened the meeting by telling everyone to keep their mouths shut. Uh, and then, uh, and then everyone agreed that yes, we need to be very. And then everyone agreed we just needed to be really secretive. And uh, and they then the conversation went on about how if it got out, it'd be very dangerous. And there's extreme sensitivity uh, about the topic they're talking about. And then there's a conversation about could we take this document and make it extra classified? <laughs> and uh, Nixon asked the group. Uh, could we make it ultra top secret? And I sort of I sort of imagine like the next line, or can we make it super duper top secret? <laughs> uh, 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 or that maybe they would suggest, you know, can we carry on this conversation in the cone of silence? Uh, so, so this long conversation about how damningly secret this thing is, and and then it turns out the conversation is really not about anything particularly. Uh, damaging. Uh, one would imagine, you know, what do they really want to keep secret? Well, maybe the secret bombing of a country or a covert operation to overthrow a government or, you know, torturing of somebody or something like that. No, what they're trying to keep secret is the fact that they were quietly abandoning the policy that they had run for office on in the, uh, at the beginning of the 1950s. Uh, so they ran on office saying they were going to liberate the Iron Curtain countries, uh, the satellite countries of Eastern Europe. They realized they can't do it. So they're going to abandon the policy. Uh, and they're scared to death that if it became known that they abandoned the policy, they would get creamed in the upcoming elections. Right. So so one of the other reasons to hide information at that level is to protect your backside in a politi politically difficult environment, right? It's it's to cover your, your politics, right? Yes. And sometimes, uh, and here's one of the reasons why it's concerning for democracy is that in examples like this, the, the political leaders are saying that they're going to pursue one set of policies as a result of winning support from the electorate while they're quietly abandoning or choosing very different policies and hiding that that is the goal. Right. Uh, another example one could point to was the 1964 elections uh, with uh, uh, Barry Goldwater, hawkish, crazy person uh, in many respects, uh, running against Lyndon Johnson, who's trying to present Barry Goldwater as a crazy person. And so he, Johnson, is you know sort of implying that that there would not be a wider war uh, if he were elected. Uh, that very moment, as everyone was going to the polls, uh, in a, in the Pentagon, there was a meeting going on, including uh, Daniel Ellsberg, who later would become famous, where they're literally planning to widen the war, right. uh, uh, and that's being kept secret from the public. Right. Uh, so these are these are really 
the the ways in which information is kept from uh, the public is especially concerning when it comes to foreign policy. And, and Ken, do you see that as the same as also trying to doctor the historical record? Or are these different things, keeping things secret from the public and actually trying to create a record that in a sense is intentionally inaccurate? Uh, how, how do you think about those two things together? I, in some ways, they're of a piece. That there are a broad range of things that are um, designed to obscure how actual decision-making. I mean, another example might be the fact that this one NSC meeting I described a minute ago where they very uh, obviously admit to the fact that domestic politics are shaping their decision-making, that almost never appears in the historical record. But you know it's always on their minds. So that is omitted either deliberately or uh, subconsciously or, or something like that. And that's not so different from you know, sort of willful destruction of documents. The the difference becomes with with willful destruction of materials or um, keeping you know sort of deliberate acts is an indication that usually they know that something is really stinky out there and they need to keep it. They need to take extra precautions to keep it from being discovered then or perhaps ever. Some of the most famous instances, I think, of of document destruction and and trying to hide these. Uh, facts from the historical record uh, are, 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 are people physically tearing up documents or destroying tapes. Do you think then that it's become a lot harder for the president or members of the executive branch to, to do something similar uh, in a world of technology and, and internet? Yeah, the question is, can, can, can you as easily destroy digital traces of the record, I guess is what you're suggesting. Exactly. Uh, and there, I, I guess I don't have the technical knowledge to know because, uh, because it would relate to if something is deleted electronically, eventually, like say it's in the White House, those electronic records are required to be transferred to the National Archives and Records Administration. Is NARA going to look for things that may have been deleted, for example? I don't know that that, that they would begin that process because in order to, um, you know, find something that's been digitally destroyed, you kind of have to know in the first place to look for it. Um, and there are other ways like to get around it. I know the Trump administration, for example, did a lot of communications on WhatsApp, um, including, you know, top advisors and the president himself. Um, so it never gets recorded at all. And that's, that's the same as document destruction in a way. It's deliberately evading the recording of, um, of communications. Right. I was, I was going to make a similar point, Ken. And just following on that point, do you think this problem has actually gotten worse? On the one hand, it's possible that technology allows us to recover things. It's harder to um, delete something. I know we all feel that way in the world of email. You know, it, Once the email goes out, <laughs> it's very hard to take it back. Whereas in theory, you could go find all the paper copies of a memo you sent and destroy them. And we know examples of that. Um, so on the one hand, it's been, it potentially has become more difficult to destroy records. On the other hand, it does appear, if we look at the record of uh, Richard Nixon with Watergate and uh, the deletion of tapes and Ronald Reagan and uh, the instances of people at the NSC shredding documents, Oliver North on 
uh, Hull uh, shredding documents in 1987 during the investigation of the Iran-Contra scandal. Uh, is there more of this happening now? And why, why, why does it appear there might be more of this happening now? Well, the Watergate example is illustrative in the sense that those famous 18 and a half minutes of, of curiously erased recordings um, had a number of consequences uh, beyond Watergate itself. Uh, in the first place, it drew attention to the existence of presidential recordings uh, that, that uh, actually turned out going back as far as Truman presidents had periodically recorded conversations, private conversations that they were having with their, with their advisors. So that drew attention to the fact that these things existed. And the other consequence is it drew attention to the fact of how damaging these things could be once they came to light, uh, as, as Nixon was discovering. Uh, and so, was, uh, and at the very public way in which those tapes were, um, dropped their, their absence was dramatized and their, the, the parts that were there were used in the courtroom it was sort of a red flag to all subsequent presidents. Be really, really careful about what you record in, uh, not just orally, but in all manner of documentation. Uh, so I think it's put presidents and their advisors made them a little bit much more, made them a little bit more conscious uh, about making sure that some things are not preserved to begin with. What about the evidence we have, at least in rec of recent presidents, again, Nixon, Reagan, Donald Trump, jumping out at us as examples of presidents really trying to use their office to actively delete, distort, um, control the historical record? Yeah, I mean those are the those are the most prominent examples. Um, but I'm in some ways more more shook by evidence of of sort of people down the food chain, so to speak, um, administration officials who are, are further down the line who are engaged in deception or, or destruction of evidence. And and one example that comes to mind is uh, the head of the CIA's counterterrorism center, Jose Rodriguez. Uh, literally shredded with an industrial type shredder, uh, 92 videotapes um, of various suspects being waterboarded in secret detention facilities run by the CIA. And one can imagine what these videotapes look like. Uh, people vomiting, crying, uh, they're naked as water, they're experiencing the phenomenon of being drowned. Um, we know that some CIA interrogators, when they saw, when they witnessed waterboarding taking place, they would actually cried themselves. So we know it must have been very horrifying. So the, the consequence of this deletion is that it perpetuates a myth that this isn't torture, that this particular activity is not truly gruesome. And we, we can imagine that if these tapes had made it into the public domain, they would be horrifying and they'd be damaging to American foreign policy, no doubt. But they would also, I think, put a permanent stop to any fiction that this is merely an enhanced interrogation technique, that this was in fact torture. Those are the kinds of things that really worry me. What also worry me is how the destruction or fabrication of evidence uh, uh, allows presidents in particular to get off their hook, uh, get off the hook for their complicity in certain types of actions. So Watergate, uh, the Watergate investigation um, 
you know, led Nixon from office, but he was never truly held accountable. And he was able to maintain his innocence until the end, in part because there was never that that quote unquote smoking gun. The same was true uh, in Iran-Contra. We have very strong evidence indicating that Reagan approved of this whole thing and knew about it. And yet still he could escape the consequences of that because of the action of the absence of physical evidence. And I think the same, I, I worry that the same might be true with these missing, um, what is it? Seven hours of audio from the, uh, while the January 6th uh, raid on the Capitol, the mob attack on the Capitol was taking place. It, it seems entirely likely that some of those conversations would demonstrate the president's immediate in, uh, complicity in the actions uh, with significant legal consequences for the former president. And that this that that this evidence is missing will make it that much harder to hold him to account. So I think that's the key point, and you've said it so well, Ken. Uh, does the nature of uh, presidential record keeping allow the president to eliminate the evidence that would um, indict him, that would lead the president to be convicted for breaking the law? Is the president able to erase evidence uh, that would be incriminating in the way that most citizens are not able to do that? In the case of Nixon that you referred to, uh, it appears as if the 18 and a half minutes uh, missing from the White House recordings uh, during his conversation with H.R. Haldeman, his chief of staff, would have been a conversation when he talked very explicitly about um, his complicity, Nixon's complicity in the Watergate break-in and in the cover-up of that. Um, certainly, the missing documents from Iran-Contra are documents that would lead one to uh, be able to more clearly see President Reagan's approval of arms sales to Iran, which were against the law, and then the diversion of money from the arms sales to the Contras in Nicaragua, which was also against the law. Both Nixon and Reagan's cases, prosecutions did not move forward for a variety of reasons, but one of them was that they didn't have, as you say, sufficient evidence. And, and as you say, this might be an issue for, for Donald Trump uh, as well. No, there's, a, there's a perversity about that in the sense that um, the the standard of evidence that would need to be applied to prosecute a former president would be far higher than the standard of evidence that would be needed for anyone else. We, uh, I think, justifiably have uh, a history of not carting our former presidents off to jail um, or having you know, sort of vindictive retribution by a victor party against a losing party, which is damaging to institutional stability. But conversely, that means that anyone who uh, has good reason to prosecute uh, a former president for a crime faces a higher bar in, because the political consequences are so great from breaking from this tradition. So I think one of the reasons why Donald Trump might in the end get away from it all is that absence, you know, really just overwhelming, you know, like Access Hollywood style tape uh, documenting the president's activity. It's uh, it seems raising the, the specter of prosecution would just be too daunting a task. Right, right. I mean, your your point, in other words, is that uh, you need um, you need more than guilt beyond a reasonable doubt to go after the president, and perversely, the president has control over the evidence that would ever make it possible for one to be able to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, so, so what should we do about that, Ken? I mean, you've spent a lot of time, as have I, as have other historians. 
struggling with these issues, struggling to get at the record. And and we're, we're, we're talking here not about presidents, also, as you say, about those who work for presidents and often use similar tactics. And, and the intelligence agencies are one of many where we have examples of this. You gave a very powerful example. What should we do about this? Well, I think in... I think some of the exam- some of the things we need to take are becoming manifest as we watch the ongoing uh, saga of the um, January 6th committee try seek to investigate uh, Trump and his former uh, lieutenants and others who may have been tied to the January 6th attack on the Capitol building. And that is that the Congress is facing uh, endless, assuming the endless parade of hurdles in getting access to documents. And, and, and evidence. So, so there my concern is less about destruction of evidence, although that may be there, uh, than about all the tools that are available to a president and his or her administration to keep evidence from uh, going before even the, the oversight of Congress. Uh, so even though there are protections, so for example, uh, presidential administrations are not supposed to destroy documents. Uh, presidents are required to turn over their personal papers to the National Archives after they leave office. Uh, these laws don't really have a significant enforcement mechanism. So there are no significant penalties, for example, that might uh uh, stop a, or deter a president from from engaging in, uh, or actually literally hauling documents away to Mar-a-Lago and hoping that you don't get discovered. Um, uh, you, there's there's no meal of enforcement, so there's my that's my biggest concern. I also think a, a related concern is even in cases where the law is on the side of freedom of information, as in the Freedom of Information Act, there are recourses, the, the ability to sue for information, but there are also enormous obstacles. It's, it's very costly. It's very slow. The freedom of information offices are often understaffed and overwhelmed, and those in their own way also provide bureaucratic incentives for the maintenance of secrecy, even when the reasons for doing so are not great. Right. That makes a lot of that makes a lot of sense. It's almost Ken as if we need uh, more moment by moment oversight of records as they're being created um, in the White House. Yeah, and I think that's that, that's a, that's a good suggestion. I, um, you know, I think the based on my years of research, and you could maybe weigh in if you have a different experience. But I think a lot makes it into the historical record. Um, I, I don't know that I'm super worried about stuff not making, uh, about stuff being destroyed. There are some really powerful examples, as I am uh, from the broader culture of secrecy that keeps things from the public domain for years and years on end and sometimes indefinitely. I don't, I don't know if you knew this, Jeremy, but I'm actually a, a partner to a lawsuit um, suing the Central Intelligence Agency for access to documents. And it's a really interesting experience because the agency maintained uh, these internal histories that were meant for its own uses, uh, but official histories of a whole range of operations and activities that it did throughout the 50s and 60s. And these classified internal histories are really valuable potential sources. And so we are suing under the Freedom of Information Act to get the CIA to release these. Uh, and we've gotten now maybe a hundred some odd different releases of these documents. 
And as I go through all the stuff that they've provided to, of course, some sections are all blacked out or largely blacked out. And as we are going through much of the material that's provided to us, we find that they're essentially releasing to us or allowing us access to the kind of thing that is already on Wikipedia. Uh, so uh, we can press for openness, but in the end, we we have little power to really press for the things that have not made it already into the public domain, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense, yes. Do you think then that the public needs to have a higher standard of our leaders in preserving records? I think, honestly, beyond the historians and the journalists who rely on these records, the public probably knows very little about what happens with the documents and the, the phone calls that, that, that keep our government running. Uh, yeah, I think that I think that makes sense. Um, I think our public actually has very little access to the the the, the moderns, the, the sort of inner workings of modern American history. The um, it's it's not simply that uh, documents aren't there, but it's that they're very difficult to understand uh, when they are there, um, and their the, their use. The, the public is not trained as a professional historian is trained to make sense of these materials. Um, and so that is also a, a question about how we teach history. Are we, are we help, are we even like most, uh, young people today, their history courses end somewhere in the mid or early 20th century. Uh, I've read very few college students who enter college and have actually been taught anything about the Vietnam war, for example, their courses end before then. So how are they to make sense of the massive growth of the national security state if they uh, aren't exposed to it even at an early age. Right, right. And, and understanding the complexities of how evidence is used and misused is obviously difficult to teach if you don't get into those, into those subjects. Um, Ken, you, you made a really important point uh, that you and I have discussed before about secrecy and a culture of secrecy within policymaking institutions, within the executive branch in particular, and the ways in which, I, I think this is your position, the ways in which a culture of secrecy also undermines, distorts, um, causes problems for policymaking in an effective way. Uh, it, would, would you say more about that? Yeah. One thing that I think is quite telling is that in some of the, some of the most important or consequential actions of the federal government in the second half of the 20th century, we had to learn about because of criminal activities. So for example, the we now know the FBI was engaged in a broader range of activities to, to neutralize the anti-war movement during the Vietnam era, uh, attempting to incite violence, for example, with them in the Black Panthers or attempting to pressure Martin Luther King to kill himself and a host of other things. We only learned about these things because a physics teacher named Bill Davidon and uh, a taxi driver and a nanny and a couple other people broke into an FBI building and stole all their documents. Uh, we only learned that the Gulf of Tonkin that was used to rationalize the Vietnam War uh, was a was largely a fabrication or an exaggeration um, when it was released by the Pentagon Papers secret massive data dump by uh, Daniel Ellsberg in 1971. Uh, we only learned about the NSA's massive program of surveillance uh, when Edward Snowden leaked those documents to the press. So we have a faulty system here in that uh, 
there is no system of accountability for presidents and the, the whole entirety of the executive branch for doing things that are very worrisome, very anti-democratic. Uh, we have no system to ensure the level of oversight that would keep those things from happening in the first place or bringing those things to light uh, in the second. Uh, it takes crimes to expose crimes. And, and that is, a, I think, a, one of the most serious failures of our, of our whole pattern of, of secrecy. The president, the whole executive branch, but the presidency in particular, in its power of classification, it's virtually unrestrained power of classification. It can hide all manner of activities, most of which is usually routine, uh, some of which is embarrassing, and only a small percentage of which actually relates to you know, serious and damaging uh, national security information. Uh, but keeping that from the public domain uh, allows us to have a foreign policy that is not well scrutinized by the public writ large. And and Ken, why has that happened? You're you're one of many historians to make precisely that point that that we've developed this culture of secrecy that's evident in the lawsuits you have to file to get access to uh, CIA documents, the 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 ways in which there's almost a default mode to classify materials. You've had the same experience I've had, and other historians of getting classified materials after going through many hoops. And finding the classified materials have nothing in them <laughs> that deserves to be classified. Uh, sometimes I get these documents in the mail. I can't remember what parts were the excised, what were, and I have to go back and look at the original document because it makes no sense. How did this culture develop? It's certainly not what you would expect r reading the early history of our republic and the skepticism our founders and those after them had about secret government, about anything that stunk of aristocracy and monarchy. H how did we fall into this? Well, it, I think you have to look to the world wars, first of all, right? That that's the, uh, that's the, the environment through which the system of classification emerges. Um, but to get to your, your question about why does it persist, uh, the, the power of classification, classification grew out of a real uh, security concern, right? There are secrets about military activities in World War II, the uh, atomic bomb project, uh, and so on and so forth, that for very good reason need to be kept out of the public domain. Uh, there were secrets related to the Cold War that, for very good reason, needed to be kept out of the public domain. But the fact that some things should be kept secret and the fact that some security threats are real uh, is essentially blown up to provide a cover for keeping anything secret, that it's far easier to classify than to not classify uh, and there's very little countervailing pressure. There's no one there saying, hey, does this really need to be classified? Uh, and so absent a sort of meaningful teeth to sort of countervailing pressure to on the side of openness, stuff just errs on the side of being secret. And then we have to wait uh, decades oftentimes to get that information to the present. Secrecy also persists. Uh, it's rooted in, for example, the concept of executive privilege is rooted in a concept that makes sense, right? The president should be able to get advice from their advisors without being concerned that that advice would be, you know, immediately end up on CNN or Fox or some such thing. So there's a good reason for some level of secrecy. But then that gets taken to 
extremes and it allows uh, and, it, and it makes it very difficult to get access to information, uh, even when the public interest is great and de- demonstrable. So, so Ken, we always like to close on an optimistic note on how history can offer pathways forward for improvement uh, and continued growth and evolution in our democracy. Is this the kind of issue where attention, greater attention from citizens, historians, and others uh, can actually make a difference uh, where where the sort of work you're doing through this lawsuit you were part of, in addition to your scholarship, raising attention to these issues, can push back against these forces toward classification and secrecy and deception that, that you've untangled for us so well? You know, Jeremy, I my students will tell you I don't often end on an optimistic note. Uh, so it's not my strong suit. Uh, but in, in more seriousness, I there are, I guess there are good, there are good sides and bad sides to the story. The, the, the sort of sad side is that uh, so much is kept from the public and so much will continue to be kept from the public. And the sad side is that oftentimes, as I've suggested, it takes illegal acts or people taking great risks to uh, reveal secret information for, for, for government abuse or excesses to make it to the public. On the plus side, our First Amendment protections do offer robust um, protection to the press for revealing information that it uh, gets its hands on. Uh, and the United States is far better at uh, bringing information into the public domain than, for example, the, the British government, which has an official Secrets Act. Uh, there are uh, legal structures for the protection of records, for the freedom of information. I think it's incredibly important that citizens understand and value those protections that when policymakers make moves to interfere with the freedom of information, such as through the Patriot Act, uh, that the public uh, pushes back and recognizes that the uh, government's right to protect information to advance national security or other causes should not be absolute and should always be kept in check by uh, the watchful eyes of citizens, by the other execu- by the other branches of government, and by the press. So there are, at the very least, some constitutional protections and pathways for addressing these issues. Zachary, as as a young person who I know is often frustrated yourself with the um, lack of access to information at key moments and with the deception that you see uh, sometimes from political leaders uh, as well as the dishonesty are, are you optimistic do you do you think that at, at the very least raising consciousness as we're trying to do today about these issues can actually motivate young people like yourself to get more involved in creating more of a culture of openness rather than a culture of secrecy i think so i think it it's made a lot easier um in the way that in the sense that the internet, I think, at in the broader public sphere has sort of democratized access to these documents. It's a lot easier now, I think, than it was a few years ago to go online and find archival documents or or even uh, to, to read uh, memos uh, that are important to recent government actions. Um, but I do think that uh, in our new sort of internet age, there's so many more avenues that the government can use to, to cover up its secrets and I think, in some ways, we're, we're 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 more used to that, and I think we have to we have to constantly remind ourselves of the importance of transparency as an end unto itself, right? Not as a tool for um, to achieve a political end, but 
but as an important value and principle of our democracy. Right, right. I mean, democracy is uh, founded on the notion that the people should understand and make decisions and that government leaders have a responsibility to share information with the public. The default, right, the the assumption should be that information is shared except in the extreme exceptional circumstances, some of which Ken, Ken gave us examples of when it involves troop movements and things like that, where you could jeopardize human lives in the short run. But most of what we've been talking about on the show is information that in no way <laughs> jeopardizes anyone's life, but as Ken said earlier on, is mostly related to embarrassment and political political need. Uh, final question for you, Ken, and, and this is uh, this really asks you to go you know deep into your historical uh, research. Um, are, are, are there ways in which um, the executive, he or herself or themselves, can um, make a big difference. Is that is that one of the crucial points at which we can see deception being encouraged or resisted at the very top? So, are you asking? You know, are there are there ways in which uh, a given president can err on the side of openness? Yes. Uh, yes, uh, there obviously there there's a, there is, but um, one has some good reason to be skeptical. Um, for example, Barack Obama during his presidency um, spoke eloquently and beautiful and often about the value of transparency. Uh, but he went after uh, Edward Snowden with the viciousness of, of Richard Nixon uh, after those disclosures. Uh, so uh, I don't know that um, even, even promises can can uh, can see can can achieve the level of transparency that we would like. Um, so I guess that's a less hopeful uh, response to your well, question. Well, I actually see it as a hopeful response because it 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 tells us that this is something that is not about rhetoric. Uh, it really takes a personal commitment. That that if if anything, the bias, as you pointed out, is towards secrecy, and oftentimes the incentives are toward deception. And that uh, in our democracy, if we have leaders who are willing to resist those temptations and those pressures, that actually might might make a big difference. That seems to be what's what's been missing is is the will. Uh, that is true. Although I guess there, I mean, Zachary pointed out. I think there's two countervailing pressures. Counter Zachary pointed out. I think the the positive side, which is that. Um, it's easier than ever to get documents into the public sphere through, you know, you can data dump, you can put things online. Uh, ordinary people can access a primary document. I know after the President Trump's sort of scandalous uh, phone call where he tried to essentially blackmail President Zelensky of Ukraine into finding or making up dirt on uh, Joe Biden's uh, son, uh, that after that phone call uh, happened and was made public, the documents appeared almost immediately. And we could read the transcript of that document and see. Uh, so that level of instantaneous exposure, I think, is quite valuable and quite useful. Uh, on the other side, the incentives to hide and distort are still as strong as ever and possibly even more so because not only of that very ease with which things could get out into the public sphere, but also by our scandal mongering culture, right? So Barack Obama, uh, you know, for example, his State Department, uh, you know, doctored some documents related to the Benghazi attack. 
why did he do so? Well, because there was a big, you know, essentially a phony scandal about the about the the attacks in Libya uh, that he needed to respond to. And there will always be this parade in our, if, unless our political culture changes, of phony or exaggerated scandals that compete for our attention with actual real things we should be concerned about. Right. Very well said. And, and we have in that case, the phony scandal encouraging a phony use of documents to counteract <laughs> the phony scandal. <laughs> exactly. So so I think all of this uh, brings out one of the themes that we come back to time and again uh, in our podcast. And it's that democracy it does require an informed and active public and an informed and active public that is willing to pursue uh, real information and really willing to hold its leaders, even when they're leaders that they like, accountable for uh, honesty and integrity. There, there really is no perfect institutional check on dishonesty, except a public that is dogged in its demand for honesty and for attention to the facts. And I think uh, what you've shared with us today, Ken, uh, brings us fundamentally back to this point that there has to be a higher political price to pay for misusing evidence and uh, excessive secrecy than there has been so far. Agreed and very well said. Yes. And, uh, and, and your work, I think, really highlights this. I, I encourage all of our listeners to uh, read uh, Kenneth Osgood's uh, Total Cold War and various other essays and books and articles that he's written. Thank you, Ken, for joining us today. Uh, it was a great pleasure and it was great fun. And, and thanks uh, to you and to Zachary. And, and yes, and Zachary, thank you for your, your poem uh, filled with uh, memorable, memorable moments in the world of secrecy and deception. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this uh, week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.